0: We are continuing to look through the book of Galatians and a powerful, amazing book. Uh, Let me open up by talking a minute about something that maybe is more important to some than others, but diamonds. Diamonds are one of the best known and prized gemstones. They have been used as decorative items since ancient times And the hardness of a diamond and its high dispersion of light give the gem what is known characteristically as fire. And it makes it useful. This is a useful stone for industrial applications as well as jewelry. Diamonds are such a highly traded commodity uh, that multiple organizations have been created for grading and certifying them based on four C's, which are color, cut, clarity, and carat. Other characteristics also affect their desirability and the value of the diamond and its use in jewelry. People love diamonds. That very famous song says that diamonds are a girl's best friend. For all the husbands out there, I hope not. Now, for me, the most fascinating characteristic of a diamond as a gemstone are its facets. At the most basic description, a facet refers to the flat surface of a gemstone that are arranged in geometrical order. When they are cut by an expert, a diamond's facets become uh, have beautiful optical effects on the gemstone surface, and additional sparkle as its facets interact with light. In fact, today, uh, a diamond cutting doesn't only happen by hand, but by machine, and they can now make curved facets. Gem cutters can cut diamond edges in such a way that it results in sheer beauty. The beauty of a diamond's facet is unquestionable. But today, as we move forward in our look at the text of Galatians, I want to share with you something far more beautiful than the most gorgeous, beautiful, costly diamond that has ever been cut. So let's look at the text. It's Galatians 2 15 through 21. Would you please rise? Paul continues in a in a discussion that will lead to chapter 3. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. In this text, Paul pointed out that salvation as a whole is made possible by all of grace. All of grace is what makes salvation possible. Now, we must stand firm that new life in Christ is by grace, not law. Now, I know some of you will probably already think, but Danny, we already believe that. Well, we need to be sure that we believe it. Now, what do I mean by new life in Christ is by grace, not law? Well, to help us understand that, we're going to look at three facets of salvation that are discussed in this text that give richness and beauty and meaning to life. So let's begin. Our first facet. Salvation as justification is possible Only by grace through faith. Please pay attention to that. Justification is possible only by grace through faith. Now Paul makes a very strong statement here. Paul declared forcefully that no one could be justified by keeping the law. Now, we can't be certain, and there is some argument about whether or not these verses, 15 through 21, are still part of the discussion Paul was having with Peter, the dressing down that Paul had with Peter. Uh, But I believe there's a slight shift here. And I believe that Paul is setting the stage for what he's going to say in the chapters to come. Now, whether he was speaking to Peter or he's speaking directly to the Galatians now, the message is still clear. He recognized, as a Jewish believer, he's saying, we are, he's talking about himself and brothers who were with him, we are Jewish believers. We have been saved by faith. He says the trust that he had in trying to keep the law did not offer salvation to anyone. Here Paul addressed the only way that one could find salvation, and that included Abraham, and all those who follow after him. There is one means of salvation. We'll examine this more closely next week with Abraham, when Paul actually begins the full-blown theological discussions of the book. Here, Paul addressed this idea of justification by three fundamental concepts. And they are, first of all, the idea of justified. Justification itself is a legal term. It meant to be acquitted. It's the opposite of being condemned. It's being declared not guilty. And essentially, it points to how God declared people to be right with him by justification. John Stott, one of my favorite writers, says, The reality is that today a lot of people find this language, this vocabulary, Strange and different. But Paul is not not writing about a universal human need is pressing today. Isn't that what he's doing? The need is as real today as 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. There are basically two things Stott says we know. God is righteous. And we are not. Our own consciences tell us that. Our own understanding, there is something wrong in my life. And virtually everybody comes to some understanding of that truth. They may not call it sin, but people realize I've blown it. I'm not all that I could be. And when we put these two ideas together, God is righteous and we are not. That is the human predicament. So something had to happen. And that something is being justified. Without justification, Uh, J.C. Ryle says, without justification, it is impossible to have real peace. Conscience forbids it. Sin is a mountain between man and God and must be taken away. The sense of guilt that lies heavy in the heart of the human being must be removed. Unpardoned sin will murder peace. And the true Christian knows this well. Our peace rises from a consciousness of our sins being forgiven, of the fact that God has justified us. That's the only way that we can have peace, peace with God. Paul then brings up the second conception, because he says, no one is justified by works of the law. And literally, in the original language, it's by works of law. There's not a definite article. And so it's been suggested that this phrase designates any religious system, Jewish or otherwise, whose hope for acceptance with God rests on some sort of meritorious obedience to formal statutes. So Paul is arguing no one has ever been justified by working really hard to be good. It just doesn't happen. Because justification does not come by works of the law, but, our third concept, through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is that way that our guilt is dealt with. John McGorman said, Faith is more than a statement of belief. It is that kind of belief uh, that which commits oneself to God's gracious gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to see how Abraham, born centuries before Jesus could be called justified next week. But in our experience, in our lives, Paul was saying, look, for most of my life, I lived as a Jew trying to earn my way to God. And there came a point in my life that I had to affirm, it just can't happen. Why? Elsewhere, Paul says it. We can't keep the law. Now, verse 17 is a kind of a tricky verse. And let me just kind of break down what it very possibly, most likely means. Paul is probably talking about his opponents who have suggested, now, Paul, you're saying we can't be justified by our works. If we agree to that, then we are saying we are sinners just like those Gentiles. If I admit I need Christ, I'm saying I am just like them. Therefore, Christ is a servant of sin. Christ made me a sinner. And Paul's reaction was, certainly not. Now that's a a phrase and it's used several times in Paul's writings. And it is always used in Paul's writings to conquer An argument that he finds not only wrong, but monstrous and horrible. He uses the phrase in Romans 6. So since we're saved by grace, shouldn't we sin more? So the grace will abound more? Certainly not. King James tried to help us see how important that was by translating the phrase, God forbid. Well, god the word God isn't in the text. They are just simply emphasizing this is totally, completely not possible. In fact, Paul says the reality, what happened with Peter and the Jews that turned aside from the people up at Antioch, the Gentiles, Peter, he says, Peter knows he's been saved by grace. If he starts acting like he has to keep the law again, did he has to eat kosher food again, Then he's revealing his heart as a transgressor. So Paul is saying, pure and simple, Christ is not the servant of sin. After all, folks, Jesus didn't make these people sinners. They already were. What grace reveals is the way God's going to take care of that. It's not the cause of sin, the law is a cause of sin. Read Romans 7 this week. uh, Particularly 7 verses 7 through 25. And you'll get a fuller understanding of what Paul's saying. But the reality is, Paul said in Romans 7, I wouldn't know that coveting was a sin until I read, You shall not covet. So it says that the key to this, no one can be justified by law. What does that mean for me and you? To think that we somehow deserve to be saved loses touch with spiritual reality. (sighs) We just don't get the truth. What do I mean by that? Let me put this as gently as I possibly can. No one in this room or on this earth can ever earn their way to God by keeping laws or rituals. We simply can't do it to perfection. I once had a discussion a few years ago with a young man uh, who was trying to convince me that my faith was not particularly more important than any other faith. He says, well, I I just live by love. I just live by love. Have you ever heard somebody say, my religion is loving my neighbor like myself? Well, let me ask a simple question. For all of you who know that Jesus said you need to love God with everything you are and you need to love your neighbor as yourself, how many of you love your neighbor as yourself 100% of the time? Let me quickly point out I'm not saying I do. We can't. And this young man who told me, I just, I live by love, well, his Facebook page says a whole lot of things differently. We cannot perform rituals. We cannot perform laws. We cannot form, perform works of niceness perfectly. So we'll never earn our way. The truth is we are made right with God through the actions of Jesus Christ. As we trust in what He has done Remember, faith isn't just I believe. It's a willingness to commit myself into the hands of Christ. To say, you died for me, and I'm willing to give my life into your hands. That's the only way we can have right standing. Our salvation, our hope lies in Christ by grace through faith alone. We need to get this. I am made right. Not because of the deeds I have done. I am made right because of what Christ has done. And the truth that I have received His grace through trusting in Him. What's our next status? And folks, that, that is absolutely powerful. God had a plan to declare us not guilty. And it was in Jesus Christ. Our second facet. Salvation is death to the old self is possible only by grace through faith. I just got through telling you, you can't earn your way. So what do we do about it? What do we do about that person that keeps messing up? Well, this is one of the most well-known verses in the book of Galatians. Paul made it clear that he have been crucified with Christ. One of the best known truths stated about Christ. Those who are trusting in Christ are united with Him by that faith. United so closely that we're identifying with His death. And so Paul chooses to point that out. Jesus died by crucifixion, and the believer doesn't just die with Christ. We have been crucified with him. Now, in the Gospels, when it talks about two thieves being crucified with Christ, it's saying that literally. Clearly here, Paul is speaking figuratively. We have not been put on a cross. We have not bled out, but yet we have died. In Romans 6.6 6, he also says the person we formerly were was crucified with him. And it's a bold statement. I have died with Christ. I have been crucified. It's emphasizing the finality that Christ's death had put the old order away. I don't need to try to earn my way anymore. Christ died. And there is a Barrier between trying to work your way to heaven and receiving grace by faith because Christ died. And the statement, I have been crucified with Christ is in the perfect tense. And what that means, that I have been crucified with Christ as a Christian has become the believer's settled way of life. John Calvin put it this way. As long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and no value for us. If I am not united in Christ through what he did, what he did has no effect on me. To be crucified with Christ, as Paul is saying, well, Philippians 3.10 puts it this way. When Paul is saying, this is what I want to happen, He said, I want to know him. And I want to join in the fellowship of his sufferings. So to be crucified with Christ means I'm dead to the law. I realize I can't work my way to heaven, so I'm not going to try anymore. We are free from the curse and guilt of the law because Christ died for us. And recognizing Christ That He is my only hope? (sighs) Means I'm not hoping in Danny anymore. For those of you still and says, oh, but I really do love my neighbor. Do you love your neighbor when he cuts you off in pass road? Do you love your neighbor when he's texting in his car and hits you from behind on pass road? Or when he takes his I guess I ought to throw a she in there and because he's aren't the only ones. When she brings a basket full of 60 items to the 10 items or less laying, the reality is we can't do it. I love this. I ran across uh, something that Glenda Lomax once wrote. She, she said, I, I was, as I was typing up the many pages of notes that I would use for my weekly podcast, I needed to replace a name in part of my document with the letters M-E. So she's giving a first and last initial, giving some sort of anonymity. I needed to replace it with M-E. So it would read correctly as I recorded. I was trying to use the find and replace command, but it looked a little different in Office 2016, and I did something wrong. Anybody make a mistake like that before? I deleted every instance of M E in the entire 17 pages of my notes. And there was no way to undo that. So with a sigh, I worked a little longer on my notes and then I and then spent a lot of time correcting them the next day just before the recording. And this is where I love it. Remember replacing it with M E. And that gets erased. When I finished correcting my notes, I started laughing out loud. I was teaching on Galatians 2.20 about being crucified with Christ, and my mistake had caused me to delete every instance of me in the whole document. I deleted me in a passage that said, I have been crucified with Christ. The reality of folks, again, we can never deal with our sin nature through our own strength. That thing that really wants me to get mad at the person who cuts me off. That thing that really wants me to, to enforce my desire over other people and make them kowtow that thing in me that is bent. Listen to what James had to say about it in his his letter. I once did a January Bible study on James, and I gave them a pretest. And one of the questions was, uh, "What did James? What was the role of the devil in temptations in James?" Everybody got it wrong. Because listen, what James says about temptation: Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am being tempted by God." For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Folks, we can't say the devil made me do it. When we give in to temptation, we want to give in to temptation. If we didn't, we would be, we would be looking at First Corinthians 10:13 a lot more seriously God will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to endure it folks we don't look for the exit sign we simply cannot defeat the inner struggle on our own and every time I'm going to do better I'm not going to do it again I'm just not going to do it again. We're reinforcing the temptation. We can't do it alone. So we need to understand application, identifying with Christ's death points to our victory over self. The old self, the old Danny, the Christ saved, the old self must die. And it is an identifying with Jesus recognizing you died for me, and the only way I can can have victory is if I understand it's not up to me. Now, yes, I must yield myself to you. Yes, I must give myself to you. But you are the one who will bring about the death of the old me. You are the one who will bring me to that place of victory. Because being crucified with Christ, again, I hope you got this, but just in case, being crucified with Christ is the same as being dead to the law. I recognize I can't live the perfect life. And I must yield myself into your hands. We are free from all the curse and guilt of the law and by the very deliverance, we are set free to live for God. So I can't fix me. I don't like saying that. I can't fix me. That hurts my ego. That wounds my pride. But I can't fix me. Which brings us to the final facet of salvation by grace alone. Salvation is new life in Christ, is possible only by grace through faith. Now Paul makes a wonderful statement here. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And then Paul stated the important truth, not I but Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, but I live But it's not really me, it's Christ in me. And folks, this echoes an important truth about Jesus. Do you remember that Jesus said in the Gospels, I don't do anything unless my Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless my Father tells me to say it. And you can read whatever miracle you want. When Jesus stands up in the boat that's about to be taken over by a storm, He doesn't say, I am the Son of God. Be peace. Be still. He just gets up and says, be still. Why? Because Jesus lived his incarnate life, not walking around saying, I'm the Son of God. Be healed. I'm the Son of God. Be raised from the dead. He was living through the power of the Spirit, guided by his Father, trusting on God and Spirit to give him the power and direction he needed. And Paul is saying, that's what happens with us. This is absolutely crucial. You will not understand anything else in the book of Galatians. For that matter, in Paul's writing, unless you get this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Timothy George has not said that means we'll be perfect. The idea that Christ is living in me, suddenly I'm perfect now. Now, I don't get upset with people. Now, I don't want my way all the time. Now, I am perfect, folks. There will be no perfection for you and I here on earth. But he also says there's no room for a mysticism that says Christ somehow takes over me in the sense that my soul, my spirit is now Christ in me. There's not some weird spiritual blending of God and man in this. I am still a human being. God will always be God. Jesus will always be Lord. I am not equal with. I am not a little God. That's not what this is all about. And that becomes clear when Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh. I hate to break it to you. I really wish I could not say what I'm about to tell you. But the truth is, and the reality, if I told you differently, all of a sudden you would understand, he's a liar. Saying, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live in the life I now live. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That does not negate that his life lived in the flesh. So as long as we're here, we're still going to have struggle. And temptation will still come. God doesn't Touch us in Christ and get rid of the temptation gene. We still face it. Just as Christ, the only person, perfect person who ever lived, was tempted. And, and Philippians, Paul said, in every way that we are. We're still going to struggle. We're still going to groan with the rest of creation. But, what this means is there is a radical transformation within me. The I I was before I met Christ no longer lives. I'm a different being, a different person. I still struggle. The old nature wants to rear his head. The Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit dwells within me, sanctifying me in my body as, Paul says in Corinthians, a temple of the Holy Spirit, enabling me to come to God in prayer. In this same book, Galatians 4.6, Paul says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Paul is saying, This is the way we need to live our lives. Trusting Christ to make us into what we can and ought to be. Christ within us is our only hope of living a godly life. Not a perfect life, but a life that is moving and being drawn more and more into the image of the Son. And the object of faith is Jesus. And when Paul said, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, folks, he has summarized the whole truth of the atonement. Christ died for me. Christ saved me. Christ enables me to live the life He wants me to live. Again, another testimony. Douglas Vincent, once shared a very honest and in the end wonderful confession. Not many of us would want to admit this out, out loud. But He said, a few weeks ago, I was working with the Bridgetown Ministries and we were washing homeless people's feet under the Burnside Bridge. I know that Christ desires to touch and hold and love all those people. When I see those homeless people, he said, I'm scared. And I feel uncomfortable and awkward when I think about washing their feet. And if I were to focus on being myself, I should act scared and grossed out. And This is where his testimony changes. In that moment, because of the grace of God, I was able to put on the character of Christ as I started washing Sam's feet, I felt love, honor, and humility. In that moment, the love of Christ lived in me. I had put on the character of Christ. I'm crucified with Christ, and I needed to yield my heart, my life, my mind into His hands. And what this tells us is that we are new creatures in Christ. We can begin to live the life that we are called to live as we learn that Christ brings us the strength, the hope, the peace, the love, all that we need to become the people we are meant to be, Christ brings. I've told you many times. It's been a while since i said it, so I need to say it again. Everything that is good in my life comes from the grace of God. The garbage, that's Danny. We need to understand we cannot do anything on our own. We have to be dependent, a constant yielding. Lord, take this day. Help me to love my neighbor as myself. Help me to show compassion when I would rather pull back. Give me the grace to be giving. When I would rather grab hold and keep everything I've got. I love this statement. While the Christian life takes place in the flesh, it is nonetheless lived by faith. Not only are we justified by faith, but we also live by faith. This means that saving faith cannot be reduced to a one time decision or event in the past. It is a living, dynamic reality permeating every aspect of the believer's life. I'm saved by faith. And that salvation will change me. And in terms of application, what does this all mean? Victory can be ours as we learn to yield ourselves to the Christ who saves us. We have to trust Jesus for this life. We have to yield ourselves into his hands. I'm not saying that we just sit by and passively let him zap us with lightning bolts of love. I'm saying... What we do is yield ourselves. What we do is say, yes, Lord. What we learn to do is say, I can't do this on my own. I have to have you give me strength. I have to have your grace in order to be graceful. I need to let your love cause me to love other people. And as we learn to yield ourselves to Christ's hands, we are opening ourselves to the marvelous, infinite, matchless love freely bestowed on all who believe. We can believe, begin to live the life Christ has called us to live. We will be made right by God. We will begin to have victory as we yield ourselves to Christ and recognize, I can't keep the law So I've got to quit trying to earn my way and we can have victory if I really understand Danny isn't going to make it through his efforts. But as I allow Christ to live in me. Auburn Sandstrom is a professor of writing from the University of Akron. She tells her story. And I've gone over this story several times, so if I start to lose it, try to understand I'm trying hard not to. She said, I was curled up in a fetal position on a filthy carpet in a cluttered apartment. I'm in a horrible withdrawal from a drug addiction. I have a little piece of paper. It's dilapidated because I've been folding it and unfolding it, but I could still make out the phone number on it. I'm in a state of bald terror. My husband is out and trying to get a hold of some of the drugs that we needed. But right behind me, sleeping in the bedroom, is my baby boy. I wasn't going to get a Mother of the Year award. In fact, at the age of 29, I was failing a lot of things. So I decided to get clean. I was soon going to lose the most precious thing I had ever had in my life, that baby boy. I was so desperate at that moment that I wanted to make use of the phone number. It was something my mother had sent me. She said, this is a Christian counselor. Maybe sometime you could call this person. It was two o'clock in the morning, but I punched in the numbers. I heard a man say hello. And I said, "Hi. I got this number from my mother. Do you think you can maybe talk to me?" He said, "Yes, yes, of course. What's going on?" I told him I was scared, that my marriage had gotten pretty bad. Before I long, I started telling him other truths, <coughs> like I had a drug problem. And this man just sat with me and listened. And had such a kindness and gentleness. Tell me more. Oh, that must hurt very much. And he stayed up with me the whole night. Just being there. Till the sun rose. By then I was feeling calm. The raw panic had passed. I was feeling okay. I was very grateful to him, and so I said, I really appreciate you and what you've done for me tonight. How long have you been a Christian counselor? There's a long pause. He said, Auburn, please don't hang up. I'm so afraid to tell you this. He paused again. You got the wrong number. I'm not a therapist. But I really enjoyed talking with you. I didn't hang up on him. I never got his name. I never spoke to him again. But the next day, I felt like I was shining. I discovered there was this completely random love in the universe. She said, I discovered that love could be unconditional. That some of it was for me. It also became possible as a teetotaling single parent to raise up that precious baby boy into a magnificent young scholar and athlete who graduated from Princeton in 2013 with honors. In the deepest, blackest night of despair, if you can get just one pinhole of light All of grace rushes in. All of grace rushes in. When we learn to yield ourselves to Christ, all of grace, it is this grace that allows you and me to find life with God to be made right with God. Not working hard, not getting ourselves straight, letting the pinhole of light of His love shine through and point us to the Christ through whom all of grace can enter and change our lives. So today, if you have never tasted the grace of God, I invite you to open yourself up to His touch, to simply receive His gift of grace, that brings you into the family of God. Cry out to Him. You don't need special words. You don't need me to teach you a prayer. Just cry out. The Word of God promises He will not turn away any who call out to Him. If you don't know Him, ask Him, justify me, save me, make me whole. Be my Lord. Now the truth, most of us in this building have professed faith in God. You're already part of the family. But maybe you've been struggling. Afraid that you haven't been measuring up to what God wants for your life. You too. Call out to Him today. Ask Him to remind you that grace that saved you is the grace that will sustain you. Ask him to renew your faith, to restore your joy. Ask him to give you the grace to yield your life into the hands of a loving God so that you can say with Paul, the life I live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm, at, I'm welcoming you in just a moment. You can come to this altar to pray if you would like. If you would like to pray with me. I'll be up front and you come and we'll pray. But today, let that pinhole of light. It is Jesus Christ on a cross. An empty tomb that shows he lives. Let that light. Open up the grace as it rushes to you.